you've survived another week. Thank you for listening, downloading, and subscribing to the Urban Shooter Podcast. This is episode number 324. I got the blues, baby. Where? Right over there. Second table from the left. See? I see a black man with a gun. Oh, it's all good. That's the Urban Shooter. He's an advocate for self-defense, legal gun ownership, and personal responsibility. Excuse me while I whip this out. It's the Urban Shooter, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. Well, not every time. You're locked on to the Urban Shooter Broadcast. Ken Blanchard founded the 10th Cavalry Gun Club, a national pro-gun organization for African Americans, and works around the country to promote safe and responsible firearms ownership. Ken was involved in concealed firearms carry reforms in Texas, South Carolina, Michigan, and Wisconsin, and testified in the U.S. Congress against bills or acts designed to prevent law-abiding Americans from legal firearm ownership or concealed carry. Ken Blanchard has been featured on radio and television shows across the United States and Europe, as well as documentaries and movies. Ken has also been featured in the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and now the urban shooter himself, Ken Blanchard. Hey, hey, hey. It's time to play. Welcome back to another fun-loving episode of the Urban Shooter Podcast. Yes, I am your host, Pastor Ken Blanchard, also known as the Black Man with a Gun. This is one fat episode. We might go over 90 minutes, so uh, just giving you a warning. I know I could have cut it. I could have chopped it, but this is what happened. I've been working hard on the new book, Black Man with a Gun, Reloaded. I had a deadline, 31 May. Uh Uh-huh. And crunch time. I just couldn't get my stuff together. I caught a flu or bug or something from the gym because I just started lifting again. And I'm walking around smelling like a Ben Gay factory. Yeah. But I'm feeling good. And I'm tired and run down and trying to get my eyes to focus. And I'm broke. Yeah. I'm waiting for Walmart to just lower them prices down to to free. They keep saying they go down every day. So what day did they actually become free? Got the unnamed church podcast popping pretty good every day. Five to ten minutes long, five to fifteen minutes long, somewhere in there, something to get you in your walk with the master. Blanchardchapel.us. Check it out if you get a chance. You know, this show is sponsored by CrossbreedHolsters.com. I think we're still sponsored by NovaArmament.com. I haven't talked to my boys in a minute. Got to go by and say hello. June, my birthday month, got a special thing. Want to try to get a war chest. Yeah, I just learned what that meant. I need a little financial help, fellas. So if you got a few centavos, you can send my way. Look for the link for the war chest on BlackMailTheGun.com. Freedom's Network still popping. Freedomsnetwork.org. I got a new project. You know, AmericanGunOwner.tv, not real happy with that. Me and the camera not doing too good. The audio thing I bought. But this is what happened. I ran into a guy. We started talking. 
And uh, I got something new coming. I won't be in it, actually. I'm just directing it. Going to be some something different. Might not even be under the American Gun Owner TV name. That's how hot it is. But I think it's going to be unique, which is pretty hard to do nowadays because everybody is doing so well on the video. I got kind of intimidated. Truth. Truth. And then the whole family thing. I got my family just went nuts in the last couple of weeks. Not my household, but my, you know, mother's, sister's, cousin's, wife's family just went nuts. So, if you're not living in this house right here, we pretty much ain't paying you no attention. Some of you guys are closer to me than my blood relatives, truth be told. But that's just how it is. Join the new church, too. Yeah. It's different not being pastor of it. I'm probably associate pastor or assistant to the pastor. I haven't got an official title yet. Not even trying to get one. We just see what happens. Part of my healing, I guess, from the abuse I just took. But life is good. Summer is here in the nation's capital. Um, I've been applying for jobs left and right. Not even getting a bite yet, but that's okay. Might end up driving a school bus. I heard there's a job fair for that tomorrow. I figure I could be like that dude in The Simpsons. With the hat on. Minus the smoke and the dope stuff. But hey, I wear a hat. Drive a school bus. Maybe. We'll see. Got to get some ducats in here. I took a spare room that nobody was using in the basement and made it into a green screen room. That was kind of fun. So I'm going to have a little, little mock table up in there and we'll start doing some video stuff in there soon. Not sure yet if it's just me or the new project. If it's the new project, then there'll be some other people in it and I'm just directing it. Yeah, you got to make your own way. Story of my life. Got a possible new sponsor, ErgoGrips.net. Talked about them last podcast. I haven't heard anybody say anything about them. Also, got a product from USRack.com. The USRack is R-A-C.com. They make a really cool um, gun lock that you can position permanently in your car, permanently in your garage or in your closet, and you bolt it to the frame, and you can't pull that joker off. It's a good, uh, it's better than a bicycle lock, I tell you that. TheUSRack.com. Trying to, trying to wrap my mind around that too. Just, if I were to sell that, everybody says just do the YouTube video and, but I think, I actually think my YouTube videos suck. In comparison to some others I've seen thereof. So I'm trying to farm that thing out. Do what you do good and leave the rest to other people. That's my plan. Coming up next on this show, we'll talk about Chicago. Chicago is really close to concealed carry, or Illinois is. And then I'm going to give you the entire discussion I had with some 
with some Cosby kids, some really fluent kids that between the ages of 21 and 40, that uh, black urban professionals invited me to a Blacks and the Second Amendment panel. And in all honesty, I got hostile in that joint. And I'll talk about that in a minute. So without delaying it any further, the 90 minutes might mean more than that. But I'm saying it's a long podcast. And thank you for listening. Thank you for being a part of my life. Thank you for tolerating it, brother. If you need to reach me for anything, my email still is blackmanwithagun at gmail.com. My phone number is 888-675-0202. I'm here for you if you need me. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands. One nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. All right, let's begin episode number 324, starting off with Chicago first, and then we'll end with the panel, Blacks and the Second Amendment, and then you can hear what I'm talking about. Home Chicago. I bet you thought Bones was about to hit it, didn't you? Yeah, I know. But I love Chicago blues. Chicago is also the home of some really good friends. The state of Illinois is the home of some really good friends. And I've been involved in the Chicago right to keep and bear arms, the Illinois fight, even though I'm on the East Coast. Just because. I don't even know why. But I've done radio spots in Chicago. I've spoken a couple of times. Um, been there quite a bit. It's like my second spot. And things are happening in Chicago. Hang on, we got a report from Belinda Rowe, part of Illinois Carry, and Don Moran, Illinois State and Rifle, telling you what's up, because you'll be surprised to know that things are getting better. They're not there yet. But they're getting better. Here's Valinda with an inside on what's going on in Illinois. Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Hey, can you give me a rundown on what happened in Illinois? Um, just kind of an update. Yesterday in committee, the uh, more restrictive um, bill that President of the Senate John Collerton and Senator Kwame Raoul want was passed out of committee. Hmm. The and that is House Bill 183, and the bill that is supported by Speaker of the House Mike Madigan mm-hmm. was held in committee and was not passed out. Oh, so you guys don't have concealed carry yet? Nope, we don't. We just a bill passed out of committee. Uh, they're expecting. Um, <laughs> Well, we have till Friday, <laughs> and they're expecting it to possibly go right down to the midnight hour before they pass something, anytime between now and then. What do you guys hope for, actually, to happen in the reality? In the reality, we we want 
a um, concealed carry bill that is shall issue mm-hmm. statewide preemption where the law is the same throughout the entire state. We want um, commercially available training so that that can be up and running right away. You know, just uh, certified teachers that are already instructing be registered to teach the concealed carry uh, license classes. We want public transportation, but we we don't know if we're going to be able to get that or not. We're pushing for it still. Oh, okay. And the two bills right now, uh, the one that made out of uh, out of committee and the one that did not, the fee and the training hours are excessive. The training hours in both bills is sixteen hours. It's the most number of hours required in in the country, or would be if it passes. Wow. And and the licensing fee is $150. The one that passed out of committee, I believe, the licensing fee is $150. And I think I read they want to add another $50 for fingerprinting costs. Make it economically unreal. 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 And for the folks who need it the most. You know, there's individuals out there that that's no hardship for them. They'll be able to do it. They can take off work, no problem, or they're retired, no problem. But the hardworking people, uh, the poorest people uh, in the city, especially in the city of Chicago, will be disenfranchised by this thing. Yeah. For for, for folks that don't know, what what's your um your thing? You you've been involved in the gun rights in Illinois for a while. You got a position About 10 or years something. Now. I am the spokesperson for IllinoisCarry.com. Oh, okay. Ten years. I didn't know that. Yeah, I've been at it since that. Involved really in 2004. Mm-hmm. Um, became the spokesperson for Illinois Carry, I think, in 2006. Nice. The, the, the wind behind the wings? Or you've been out front, though. <laughs> Well, uh, I just see it. I just keep poking them with a stick, you know, until we get this done. Just keep poking them with a stick. Fortunately, now we've got a, you know, the the court case in the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals is a pretty big stick. Yeah, yeah, it is. So you guys are beating them with legislation, like using their own forces against them, too, right? Yes, yeah. At Illinois Carry, we have always said we fight this battle for for the right to carry in Illinois on three fronts the judicial front with the lawsuits, and Illinois Carey was one of the plaintiffs in Moore versus Madigan, and we helped find uh, legal counsel for Mary Shepard in Shepard versus Madigan. So we've been, we fight it on the judicial front, we fight it on the legislative front with what we're doing now and trying to get a law passed, and then we fight it on the electoral front and trying to encourage people to support candidates that not only say they support uh, the Second Amendment, but that they also support uh, law-abiding citizens' right to carry a firearm for personal protection. Yeah, that's what's up. Are you like so a, a, law- a lawyer or something? Or I am an uh, everyday citizen. Wow. Just an everyday citizen. Uh, my husband and I were uh, the target of a mentally ill family member years and years ago, and that's where our passions come from. When we went to our local law enforcement county and state law enforcement they said there's not anything we can do because the man has not hurt anybody yet yet right and that's why we are so passionate about this because what it comes right down to is 
everybody's self-defense is dependent upon themselves. We're the ultimate first responder. That's true. That's true. And that doesn't mean... Somebody said that once, and I just love that. Hasn't been said loud enough. Yes. You are a parent? No. We've had foster children in the past. Oh, okay. Well, cool. Well, thank you for taking a couple of minutes just to... To, to update me because I hadn't a clue. Oh sure. I see you all yeah. the time. You hug you every chance I get. Don't know a yeah. thing. And Paula Bradage is a dear, dear friend of Both of, of mine, and we work hand in hand. She is our Chicago base. Let me tell you. <laughs> yes, yes. Doctor Paula is doing it. She is the force on the ground in Chicago. There is no doubt about that. Well, hugs to both of you guys. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Felinda. You bet. All right. I'll talk to you later. Okay. All righty. Bye-bye. Right. Bye-bye. All right. Next up, Don Moran. Hi, Ken. Don Moran. Hey, man. What's the deal? So it looks like there's a deal that's in the works and it's going to happen. All right. Uh, nobody's going to be happy. We're going to be unhappy and the other side's going to be unhappy because, you know, it usually happens when you got two people that are diametrically opposed to each other, you know, and you have to reach a compromise somehow. Uh, you know, nobody's going to be satisfied with the result. But it, I think it gives us a good starting ground. Uh, consider where we're coming from here in Illinois. And, you know, it, uh, we're going to have preemption from home rule authority. So you'll be able to carry any place in the state that's not a prohibited spot. Um Parks, uh, hospitals, schools, um, courtrooms, that sort of thing are all going to be banned places to carry. Um, But if the park has a trail that runs through it, like a bicycle or running trail, then the trail is exempt. Um, If there is a home rule authority that has a ban against magazine capacity or the type of fire or certain types of firearms, and you have a carry permit uh, that will uh, allow you to carry whatever it is your firearm that you brought with you that you're carrying. In other words, uh, we've got one community, Moline, Illinois, that has a ban against exploding bullets, wherever those are, and uh, this would preempt that. What kind of ammunition you can carry? What kind of? We have a city called Aurora that has a ban on magazine capacity. You'd be able to carry whatever magazine you have in your firearm, but you're carrying your concealed carry permit. So, um, so there's some good stuff in it. Uh, we didn't yeah. overturn all of the home rule community uh, gun bans and things that we have in Illinois. Cook County is still going to have an assault weapon ban. Chicago is going to have an assault weapon ban. It's been in place for some time, but there's limits on new ones being enacted. Um, after a certain date, uh, that'll be under the purview of the state legislature, not under the local home rule authority. So there's some good things for us uh, and some bad things for the other side because they didn't want to see any home rule authority usurped. Explain, explain home rule. Uh, in Illinois, if a community is over a certain size or if its population votes to become such, they can become a home rule community uh, which is allowed to make its own ordinances and uh, with its own fines and penalties and their misdemeanors 
but they can go up to a year in jail on $1,000 fine. In some cases, like the city of Chicago, if you're caught with a firearm that you're not supposed to have or whatever, they have also have the ability to confiscate your vehicle. Um, and uh, certain things are determined by them to be under their home rule authority to be contraband per se. In other words, if they have a ban on certain magazines, your firearms or whatever, if you have them in your vehicle, they can, they've passed a law that says that uh, if you're in possession of something, we can confiscate your vehicle and, and plus fine you and put you in jail for a year. So there's our, our state constitution allows this. And it takes, in order to override those sorts of laws with our state legislature, uh, the Constitution requires that we have a three-fifths majority in both houses to overrule those sorts of laws. So for us to get uh, the ability to knock down this home rule thing is really a, it's a huge thing for us in Illinois. We've been after preemption as long as I've been involved in the firearms rights movement for 30 years. All right, man. So there's some celebration to be done anyway, though. Yes, yeah, and, and it's the first step towards getting it all done. But it's, uh, you know, it's it, at least it gets us the ability. So if you're carrying a concealed firearm, you don't have to worry about what happens when you go from town to town or county to county. Uh, there's 209 home rule communities in the state of Illinois. One one county and the rest of them are all municipalities. So we could have had a hodgepodge of 210 different laws, a state law plus 209 individual community laws that people would have had to try to guess where they were at and what they were allowed to do and what they weren't allowed to do. It would have been a nightmare. For real. Do you guys have a website where all the stuff is going to be put up eventually? Information? Uh, you can actually read. This is House Bill 183. And if you go to uh, www.ilga.gov and do, on the left side, there'll be a little search box. You can search for HB 183. It'll come up, then you need to click on the link at the top that says full text, then click, click on uh, Amendment 5. Uh, Amendment 6 just cleaned up a couple little words, but Amendment 5 is actually the bill itself. All right, man. Thank you for that. This will help out a lot for all those who are interested in what's going on in Illinois. Yeah, we're, we're getting there. We're getting there. We would, uh, a lot of people, you know, there's a lot of consternation. A lot of people were like, let us go over the cliff. Uh, the 7th U.S. Court of, uh, of Appeals decision will be applicable on June 9th, and Illinois will have constitutional carry. But with this home rule thing that we have in Illinois, we would never have constitutional carry. We would have a nightmare and patchwork of all different sorts of laws and ordinances all over the state, and it would be impossible for somebody to know where they're at and what they're doing. Um, a bill is really in our best interest to get some sort of bill on the books that everybody gets the opportunity to find out exactly what they can do and where they can do it and where they can't. Um, keeps people out of trouble, and uh, we don't want to see people getting into trouble that are well-meaning. You know? So you guys kind of work this as a a tactical move, a smart move, using your brain so that you're brawn. Well, back in 2006, when I came on as the president of the association at our annual meeting, I asked our membership, I said, uh, I asked them if they would consider us uh, adding a litigation branch to our toolbox. Uh, we've had lobbyists in our state capital for years and years and years, and we were never able to really move the ball. And 
I suggested to our membership that it might behoove us to start doing some litigation and to leverage the legislative side, to le- leverage lobbyists. And, uh, you know, that ended up being McDonald versus Chicago and ended up being uh, a, a whole host of other cases that we've had here in the state of Illinois that have helped us move the ball right up to and including this case, which is uh, Moore slash Shepard versus Madigan, which is the seventh U.S. Court of Appeals case that got us to the concealed carry. So um, working both working on both sides of the street seems to be the thing that is effective. It's the Chicago way, right? Yeah, and you know this isn't this isn't the end. Um, this is a starting point. You know, when Florida first passed concealed carry, it wasn't the same concealed carry that they have today. Uh, and I'm sure 10 years from now, this isn't going to be the same concealed carry uh, that we're going to come out of this. isn't going to be the same concealed carry we'll have then. Right, right. All right, man. Thank you for the insight. You're welcome, sir. All right, man. Have a great weekend. All right, you too. Thank you. All right, buddy. Take care. All right, next up is a um, little dialogue that went on between three panelists and about 40 or 50 young urban professionals out of Washington, D.C. On May 30th, 2013, I was invited to be part of a three-part panel at the Greater Urban League in Washington, D.C., a group called the Thursday Network. And they're 21 years old, 40 liberal African-American professionals that are in the beginning of their journey into business and politics. Most had all the preconceived notions that support stuff we don't like, like gun control. They didn't have a clue, but were adamant about what they didn't know was fiction. About 50 people in attendance. Out of that group, I think I piqued the interest of about 10%. And seeing that, I offered training to whomever wanted it. Some hopefully capitaldefenseinstruction.com will come to my rescue and uh, schedule a first steps class that we can put together for the two or three that will volunteer and that already have some emails confirming that I wasn't uh, talking to myself. You know, I was surprised that the seemingly pro-gun panel that they chose to speak wasn't very pro-gun. I don't know if they know that or not. Now, after listening to him on a panel, I lost it. I went Samuel Jackson. I had to hold back on just being outright nasty. For real. You, you only hear it maybe in the, in the dialogue. But my tone, my tone was way different than my normal when I'm speaking. Uh, Mr. Andrews and Dr. Richardson are brilliant, capable, good men, I believe. But the stuff they were saying was propaganda and conspiracies and, man, it was tough. They thought straw purchase stuff was new. Or that they they could work with politicians and actually make a difference. One of them started off with some castle doctrine stuff, and it wasn't a debate, so I couldn't just interrupt them and just go off because I was supposed to be on the same side. They went off about Alec and Rialco guns, and I had to just speak up on that one. It was it was difficult for me. It was the first time I've ever been that way. And you should have seen the faces 
of when they asked, what can we do? And I said, you got to be responsible. Take care of your own house. He thought I might have three heads. I actually brought my son. He was a fly on the wall. And we got out of there. He was like, dude, they don't like you too hot. You was dropping too much bro science in there, Dad. That made me laugh. Here it is in its entirety. Forgive the audio if you can't hear every little piece of it, but I try. How's everybody doing? Good. 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 Introduce our panel. First, we're going to have Brandon Andrews. Um, Ms. Andrews serves as the executive director for Inside America, an organization founded by former Congressman J.C. Wasser to provide a nonprofit organization that exists to empower communities of color with policy solutions. Um, Ms. Andrews, come on over. <laughs> Primarily because the, the the victims aren't typical the typical victims that we see that are associated with gun violence. So knowing that the, um, we've had massive numbers of young African American youth and teens who have been injured in urban America, it didn't seem to be a pressing issue at that time. So I definitely think that, and, and don't get me wrong, I. I sympathize with the families and the children who were who were victimized but I also believe that there was a definitely had to be um, a racial component to it because these are issues that have affected the African-American community for well over 30 decades for 30 years so I am glad that the issues have been raised and that we're now focusing on gun control but I think that to a certain extent, young black lives have probably been played a little bit more cheaply than the lives that were taken in, in that incident. So, Mr. Blanchard, would you agree? Uh, totally. And good afternoon, everybody. Newtown wasn't new. Violence isn't new. Kids have been getting killed for centuries, for decades. What happened this time is, well, let me go backwards. Gun control is not new. Ever since the creation of gunpowder, it's been an issue who had 
power. Before Newtown, the people who make money in fear and gun control were almost non-existent. They're almost gone. Nobody cared anymore. When Newtown came, they got a chance to infuse the system with new legislation, new fear, new tactics, and bring everything back. Actually, nothing that you hear now is new. None of it. Not one thing. Before Newtown, it was Columbine, 2000. Before Columbine, it's always been a horrendous thing. Even back in the 60s, there was a guy who climbed up a tower in Texas, and Senator Kennedy wanted to ban 30, um, 30 caliber rifles. That was the assault weapon at the time. None of the argument is new. Andrews, any thoughts? Yes, yeah, sure. So the the human factor, as with a lot of things in public in the public policy sphere, kind of caused uh, the gun debate to bubble up to the top. Um, it created, I guess, a good nexus of interest um, and uh, a need for a solution to the problems that we see um, in our nation. And so, although. Um, with the stall, and we can talk about this later, um, in the U.S. Congress currently on um, gun measures, um, I think there's still a great opportunity for us to find a solution and move forward with it. And uh, it's unfortunate that it took Newtown for it to happen with, as my brother here mentioned, similar things happening in urban communities um, weekly. Um, but we have the opportunity, and uh, I hope we'll take the chance to, to move forward and find a solution, hopefully. Okay. We're going to stick with you, Mr. Andrews. It's a great point you brought up about the, what's going on in Congress. Um, the issue remains one of the most divisive, which is going to control with the American people and Congress is left to sift through it all. What insight can you provide as a former congressional staffer as to why the issue continues to be so difficult to legislate? Well, when you think about the gun debate now, I think that what comes to most people's mind is um, gun registration and background checks. And so the question becomes, why do members of Congress, in particular Republican members of Congress, have an issue with registration and background checks? Now, to answer that question, um, you have to go back to um, really the founding of the nation, and it's it's an effort to keep the government from being able to go down the registration list, find people that have weapons, and prevent them from being able to stop something unsavory from happening. That's that's the impetus. That what that's what keeps members of Congress. Um, that's what keeps their constituents, honestly, from allowing them to fully endorse gun registration, fully endorse um, universal background checks, etc. Um, there is movement being made. Um, we saw about a month ago um, major gun legislation in the Senate fall. However, there have been some other efforts um, that I believe are moving forward. And so um, the first one I'll bring up is a bipartisan piece of legislation. Um, it's sponsored by uh, 
Scott Ridgell, um, who's a Republican, and then Elijah Cummings, who's Democrat. Um, there's a couple other co-sponsors on it now. But what this piece of legislation does is it goes after straw purchasing. And so straw purchasing is someone going to a gun show, someone going to a pawn shop, someone going anywhere and buying a gun that they don't intend to use, buying a gun that they intend to sell on the gray market. Um, so what happens is someone wants to purchase a weapon, they can't get their hands on one, so they give someone a fee, a nominal fee, to go and purchase the weapon, or the person that purchases a large quantity of weapons marks up the price a little bit so they make some profit from being able to do it. And this is one of the ways in which guns are able to infiltrate communities, especially communities like Washington, D.C. And, and, and I'd like to, maybe I should pause here. It's one of the ways in which, which guns are able to infiltrate communities where you have significant restrictions on gun ownership, on gun possession. Um, Right here in Washington, D.C., um, we've had for, I guess, since about since 1976, really the strictive, strictest gun laws in the nation. Um, you may or may not be aware of this, but um, I believe Mayor Gray is only the sixth elected mayor of Washington, D.C. Before that, Washington, D.C. had an administrator that was appointed by Congress to oversee the district. And so... When the first elected mayor and the first city council came in back in the late, back in the mid seventies, they wanted to enact some changes. They wanted to do some things that um, they felt hadn't been able to be done in urban communities in the past, and they wanted to do some things that would hopefully be successful and be a model for urban other urban communities going forward. One of those things was this comprehensive uh, gun legislation. Um, basically, the legislation meant that if you own something um, before 76, you could, you could be grandfathered in. If you own something after that, um, it had to be either disassembled or had to have a trigger lock on it in your possession in your house. Um, and it, it was a full assault weapons ban. Now, if you look at the statistics in terms of violent crime in Washington, D.C., since 1976, you see, a flux you see fluctuations here and there um, in the amount of violence, but Washington, D.C. has and continues to be, unfortunately, one of the nation's top places for violent crime. If you look at the per capita murder rate or the per capita um, rate of gun usage and violent crimes, D.C. has consistently been at the top. And well, so, Mr. Well, Mr. Andrews, that's a great point that you bring up about Washington, D.C. being at the top. I want to ask Mr. Blanchard, though, why do you think regarding gun control in Washington, D.C., you know, used to be known as Chocolate City, it's changing now, but why do you think African Americans are less than half as likely as whites to own a gun and typically more likely to prioritize gun control over gun rights? In Chocolate City, that's no longer. <laughs> it's cultural. It's conditioning. We have, um, I give an example, 
all the gun laws that have created in this country, the very first ones from 1630 till now, all have a nexus of the black person. The African was always involved in the gun law. We have a culture of being prohibited from owning a firearm. It was so prohibitive that you could get killed, you could get pulled out of your house. So we have mothers who, matriarchs, who kept our families together, they wanted to keep their sons out of the work camps, out of trees, out of being slaughtered, forbid guns. Well, this continued as a tradition, almost right up till we went from migration from the south to the big jobs in the city. Big Mama says, no guns in my house. Don't, don't have to know why, just no guns in my house. I want to keep you safe, boy. I want to keep you right. Well, this continued until it became like a, a cultural thing of only the country people do this. And it kind of separated us. We've kind of continued that on without even like digging into it deeper. But we still have mixtures that still do it that are um, our academics, our military, our police, um, the cultural conscious are still are still in the hunters, the traditional people, um, still involved. But for the most part, we have a culture that has kept us from it. I think we see a lot of victims, honestly. And um, I think that, you know, and I, I think you're, I take your point on the cultural piece, but I think when you look at victims of violent crimes around the nation, they are... Um, very often black, they're very often Latino, and I think people get tired of seeing it, and they don't understand why um, why you continue to allow folks to have guns when guns are the primary way that African American men um, before the age of 35 um, are being killed or are dying. Every victim has two choices. You'll either say Stop the madness, somebody fix it, or never again. 50-50. You're either say, I'm, not, I'm taking charge of this, it's no longer going to happen on my watch, or somebody help me. That's what you hear. So, Mr. Richardson, what are your thoughts on that? I want to get to, to, your, to your earlier um, question regarding sure. the legislation. One thing that people need to be aware of is that there's an organization, I was mentioning this earlier, and the name of it is ALEC, American Legislative Exchange Council, which works with the NRA to um, support legislators and actually have legislators that are part of their organization, which draft gun laws almost verbatim. So you have legislators and corporate sponsors, such as ExxonMobil, uh, Pepsi, Kraft, uh, as well as... Um, uh, I, I, I think the other one is, uh, I'm blanking on this, Craft Mobile, and you have, uh, I think, Subway as well. That all of these corporations are involved in this organization, which serves as a lobbying group for the NRA. So, for example, in Arizona, 49 of the legislators and the state legislators are part of that organization. So you have legislators that have created an organization that has basically worked with legislators to create laws which are basically placed into uh, in, into law verbatim. So for instance, stand your ground. That was created by Alec. If you could tell the audience, those may not know what stand your ground is. Stand your ground is the uh, defense used in the Trayvon Martin case by uh, Zimmerman. 
which may, basically means that a person has the right to defend themselves if they feel like they're being threatened and don't have to flee or retreat. So that law was actually created by Alec. The privatization movement that you're seeing across this country, and it doesn't just apply to gun laws, it applies to just about everything that we're seeing being privatized, and that includes education. So when you look at the privatization of education and you look at even D.C. being one of the cities that has the largest school privatization movement, you can see the correlation between why there's so much violence in this country and and these organizations having something to do with fueling it. So, and, and in addition to, you mentioned the gun trafficking issue. The ATF, I think no less than maybe a year or two ago, there was a, a, a scheme called the Fast and the Furious. Where guns were allowed, the ATF was supposed to be trailing uh, straw tra traffickers. They allowed those guns to go into Mexico for some odd reason. They didn't follow where the guns went. The guns ended up in the hands of some Mexican cartels and then ended up, one of those guns was used to shoot a border patrol officer. And only then did it become an issue that we're allowing guns and straw traffickers to float around this country. And in the same vein, and you may call me a conspiracy theorist, but I don't think I'm wrong, in the same vein that we were able to uncover, ultimately, that the government was complicit in bringing cocaine into urban neighborhoods, I think the same thing occurs with, with guns. I mean, we have, a uh, in Prince George's County, there's a, a dealer, it's called Realco. 25 to 50% of all guns found in gun crimes in Prince George's and in uh, D.C. can be traced back to this one dealer. But do you think they're closed? No. In their defense, though, they're the only game in town. Exactly. If you're the only store, every gun that's going to come out of there, some of them are going to be bad, some are going to be good. But they're still being, but they, there still hasn't been any pressure to do anything about it. They haven't broke, broke any laws. That's, right. that's why they're still in business. Right. They haven't broken any laws, but clearly they're attached to new 2,500 guns that have been related to gun Auto dealers and truck so, dealers that have cars getting killed, same deal. So, Mr. Blanchard, what is your opinion on that? You're saying that it's real code. And I think that, is that the one that's on Marlboro Park? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, they're the only game in town, they're the, and they're kind of getting scapegoated at the same time. Now, what is, what's going on there? Why, why, first of all, why do you think they're the only game in town as far as... In what was Prince George's County. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, we were talking about Real Cub. The uh, you were saying that they're the only game in town. The only gun dealer in is it Prince George's County? No, just in that area, close to that area. And Dr. Richardson was saying that they're responsible for how much? What was the percentage again? They're responsible for. They found anywhere between 25 and 50 percent of all guns and gun crimes trace back to that dealer. Right. Okay. And you were saying something about that? My, my point was, 20 years ago, if you wanted to start your own business as a firearms guy, you had to apply to a federal background check, get your fingerprints, get all your, your licenses, and, and have your residence ready to go so that anytime that the ATF wanted to come and check on you, you could be checked. Well, gun laws have tightened down so that if you've been squirrely in anything, ATF, FBI, state police have shut you down. 
right now, Rialco is the only, besides them and a couple of ranges, the only place that you can buy firearms in that area within square square miles. So saying that, every gun that comes out of there has the potential to be used in a crime. And how, how can that happen? If I have a firearm, I buy it from Rialco. I don't secure my firearm. I leave it in the back of my car. My car gets robbed. I get jacked. I lose my vehicle. The trunk gets popped. That gun is missing. It's now in the street. I file a police report. I lost my firearm. Two weeks later, they said that gun was used in the commission of a crime. It is traced now back to Rialco. It's just that simple. They're the only game in Prince George's County. That's, that's how they can get the, the evil the thing. That couldn't possibly be representative of all the guns that are caught in gun crimes that someone's had their gun stolen. you believe that? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Well, let me ask Mr. Andrews, since he's the policy person, he's the legislative person. Um, the recent mass shootings have heightened the gun discussion to levels previously unseen, as we've kind of seen here somewhat tonight. Yeah. Both sides appear to be firmly planted in their respective corners. Where is the middle ground on this debate? Is there a middle ground? Is it possible? So I, I think the middle ground is what I mentioned earlier. And, and what you mentioned with Fast and Furious, it's... It's go. It's beginning to get after the bad actors. It's beginning to get after the folks that aren't law-abiding citizens that would be involved in these background checks, that would be involved in this registration that's been proposed. Um, I think you've seen, you see with any issue when you're on Capitol Hill that Folks are going to have on the right side what they want. Folks are going to have on the left side what they want. So you've got to find a way to marry uh, kind of the two needs, the wants of the two sides. And I think everyone wants the violence to stop. Um, I think everyone here, Urban League and other uh, organizations that are working in urban communities want the violence to stop. And the easiest way or the best pass forward right now on Capitol Hill is going to be going after those bad actors. So I started uh, explaining a little bit about kind of the history of gun laws in D.C. Um, to kind of give you an example of where the two extremes are. You have what happened in Washington, D.C. since the 70s um, being seen largely as not as effective as folks thought it would be. Personally, as someone that deals with public policy, prohibition on a macro scale doesn't doesn't really work in public policy. I mean, we've seen that with alcohol. We've seen that with, with marijuana. We, when we try to prohibit things, folks find ways, um, novel ways, to be able to um, get whatever it is we want to prohibit. And so um, just personally, prohibition doesn't work. And we've seen that play out in D.C. since 76. And something that I didn't get to is that the D.C. law or parts of the D.C. law were actually declared unconstitutional. It was said that they violated the Second Amendment rights of D.C. citizens, and this was back in 2008. The case, if you want to look it up, it's uh, District of Columbia versus Heller, um, if anyone's interested. But parts of it were declared unconstitutional. Some parts of it remain. It's still very strict and among the strictest in the nation. But we have that extreme this year. Then we have some folks 
on the other side of the issue who say we shouldn't have any registration, we shouldn't have any um, any more accountability in the system. We just have to uh, ensure that we are going after the bad actors, ensure that we are um, enforcing the laws that are currently on the books. And then you have, you know, Wayne LaPierre, he says that we need to have armed guards in schools, et cetera. Um, and so neither one of those extremes is something that's going to be palatable, and neither one of those extremes is really practical. So what we're left with is hopefully finding some new ways. I think the straw thing is a good first step because on the broader issues, I don't see it happening um, I really don't see it happening this year um, on the broader issues. On some of the smaller things where we can take steps forward, on some of the agency pieces where we can put pressure on agencies to increase, enforce, increase enforcement, we can put pressure on the president to get all the appointments in place at the ATF that haven't been there for a couple of years. Those types of things are small steps that we can take forward. But on the large and the larger debate, I think it's going to take a little bit more time for us. So what about you, Dr. Richardson? What role can community-based organizations play in stemming the impact of gun violence on families? It seems like we need some advocacy here on both sides. That's a million-dollar question. I mean, there are a lot of things that we can do um, on a very grassroots level to stem the tide, and I think there are some programs out there that have had some success, but haven't really had enough funding to do so. So, for instance, such as Ceasefire in Chicago, um, you had here in D.C. the Peaceaholics, you have hospital-based intervention programs like the one I have at Prince George's County. So I just want to give you a little bit of background information. I, um, I have a program at Prince George's County Hospital in a trauma unit, so I work directly with young brothers between 18 to 34 who have been shot. And when someone comes into the trauma unit and they've been stabilized, I'm usually the first person that approaches them at bedside. So these are guys who have been, these are young brothers who have been shot, stabbed, or assaulted. So what we're find, what I'm finding is that you can't talk about this in a vacuum without discussing all the other issues that impact people who have been victims of violence. And, and what we found is 90% of the brothers that we interviewed have been incarcerated. So if you think about incarceration and felony disenfranchisement and that once you've been convicted of a drug felony, you're no longer eligible for housing, you're no longer eligible in, in states to vote, you're no longer eligible for a Pell Grant, These are, you're, no, you're no longer eligible to live with someone who lives in public housing. And that was created under Clinton's One Strike Your Outlaw. So you think about all of these things and then you have to check the box on an employment application that you've been convicted of a felony, then more than likely you will not get a job. You have become a second-class citizen. And so ultimately that will lead somebody because out of survival, you will have to turn to the street. And so when we're interviewing guys to have 90% 90%, well, we might as well say it's 100%, that come into the hospital who have been incarcerated, that's, that's insane. And 60% of the guys who come back in, who come into the hospital, 60% of them, they've been there two or more times. So 45% of the people who come into the hospital for gunshot wound or stabbing or assault, 
they will return in five years and 20% of those guys will be dead. So it's a real issue that goes beyond just communities being involved. There's a, it's a structural issue. And if we don't if we don't begin to identify things as structural violence that lead to direct violence and structural violence, I mean housing, poor housing, poor educational systems, um, fourth grade reading averages being predictive of how many prison beds are built. All of those things play into how much violence we have in communities. That's a great point you raised. All three panelists actually great points you raised. Now we're going to have some questions from the audience. Yes, Okay, training. Training saves lives. If you know what a firearm can do and cannot do, you can help your neighbor out. You can help your, your child out. You can help your school out. You don't need armed police officers. Sorry, Wayne. You need a community that can take care of a community. I learned firearm safety from my grandmother. When I'm able to teach my children the same thing, so... The accidents, I give example. You know how often some child finds a, a, a throwaway gun in an alley and then they accidentally point it the wrong way and they shoot themselves or they discover daddy's gun that mom doesn't know he has and then there's an accident and then nobody wants to admit it. All that stuff's because we've been undercover about it. But if we were to train, I'm not saying you have to become NRA members and, 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 and hang out with me. I'm hardcore gun. I'm going to tell you that right now. I'm the, I'm the far end of the spectrum on this table right here. I'm I'm the guy that, that you you're afraid of, up to a point. Actually, I'm a law-abiding pastor as well. Internationally known as Black Man <laughs> BlackManWithAGun.com is my website. <laughs> Aside from all of that, training is what saves you. If you if you understand what's the business end of this thing, and you can teach your children, your child will be safe. Don't have to be a gun person. Just know like a like fire danger. We like to do this. And you have to open this stuff up. My daughter, I'm talking about my daughter. When I was about when she was nine, took all my firearms, put them on the table, made them all safe, and said, This is what daddy had. 
She looked at him a couple times, picked him up. Can I shoot this? Yeah, we're going to the range. She went to the range. She shot it a couple times. She was awesome. I thought I had the next Annie Oakley. But she goes, this is boring. Put it down and never touch it again. It had done its job. It was no longer a mystery. I know my baby's in, if she had to take care of herself, she can. Now she's 30, got no, no problem with that. It's, it's like that. But you got to go through the training just so that you are not beholden to the news, to media, to, to whatever. So training is a topic. So I've, I've got a couple. I've got a couple well, comments on on things we can do on the advocacy side. Okay. Well, if you can make it quick, we want a concrete step from since you're the public policy person. Yeah. So that, you know, because she wants the real deal. She yeah. doesn't want you know, the political. She wants what can we do public policy wise right now, tomorrow, right now, tomorrow to get it, to get it moving. What? Well, so you guys have a civic engagement committee. I'm not sure how often or if you guys interact with the city council, but, um, and that's not, not trying to put any pressure on anybody or call anybody out or anything, but, but if you do interact with the city council, the, the murder rate in DC is, I believe, what is, let's see, let me find it here. It is, it's 12.46%. The next highest is in Louisiana and it's 10%. And so with D.C. having the strictest laws in the country and having had them since the mid-70s, as the city council, what are they doing about violence in D.C. specifically? Okay. Um, the second thing is we understand that training is great to respond to, um, respond to things. Um, I'm actually um, on the Commission for National and Community Service for D.C., and so we do all the community service stuff through Serve DC, but then we also do um, administration of the FEMA funds for disaster and emergency response relief. So come and ask the commission, what are we doing for emergency response to disasters or emergencies that have something to do with gun violence? Um, number three, well, we understand that some people are crazy. We got another question for the audience. Well, my, my, my point is we Hold understand. On, we, we will get back to it. Okay. We have time. Go ahead. Another question? Okay. Yes. My name is Nikita Clement, and I was writing little questions. I'm not ask all of them, but uh, two that stood out, uh, maybe can carry on, is um, in regards to the organizations that support uh, gun legislations, are there any initiatives in which they're giving back to communities to educate? Since they are, they are making a lot of profits off the sales guns. And when you say educate specifically, like for example, um, I have friends that actually work for tobacco company, even though it's not good, the tobacco company, because of all the negative things that's been going on, they actually give back millions of dollars for education, for health, you know, health programs. Education about tobacco. Oh, so they want education about guns. So it could be education. Right, they also have resources okay. for people that actually are impacted by the impact of um, tobacco. So, for example, I mean, NRA's, I mean, do they give back 5%, you know, 2%, like what percentage do they give back to just communities? If it's, you know, just in general, that's just one question. Or if any. Or any gun manufacturers that you know of. I don't think any are, but I, at one point Smith & Wesson was involved in doing that, but the NRA basically came down on them. Okay, but why? Because they they were advocating, they felt to a certain extent that they were advocating gun control. So those initiatives that were 
that were educating people and putting those kind of positive messages out, those those is, those that agenda was pretty much crushed. But that was only one gun company. And the other thing that looked up with um, what are the stats, y'all yeah, want to talk about numbers, but what are the stats of murders, shootings that are being traced directly to the gun owners? Are most murders and shootings um, done by the person that owned the gun? Are they accidental? Or was it someone that they got off the streets, mental illness? I mean, what was the correlation? That might have never person the stats. Yeah, so I'd have to look up specific stats because I don't have them at my fingertip. Um, yeah, but I, but I, I can look them up and get them to you, though, if you want. Looks like you're going to look them up. Great. <laughs> Any more questions? Yes, sir. Well, I've got a comment. Okay, if you can stand. Um, my question is, it goes back to what you were mentioning earlier about training a child. I know, uh, me personally, I feel like even though you can train somebody how to use a firearm, that doesn't necessarily make them responsible enough to use it. And I know probably about two weeks ago, it was, um, I read an article about some guy who was like five year old grandson that shot the other kid. But he informed like the news reporters that he did train the child. So I don't think that you should just teach your kids how to use a firearm. You can tell them what it is, but not necessarily like let them know this is how you use it. Because even if they may not want to use a gun, they still know how just in case for some reason they take it away from their home. And then the part of training the community, do you feel like that still leads to George Zimmerman's? Because he does know how to use his firearm. And you do have this, and you'll create a situation where I guess people just take it their own initiative instead of calling like uh, police officials to handle themselves. So will gun training create a bigger monster? I say no. And Zimmerman was just wrong, period. That joke ahead of me. He even used Castle Doctrine wrong. Castle Doctrine, or what's the, what's the official word for it? It's the uh, Stand Your Ground. Stand Your Ground is based on the Castle Doctrine, which is old as Rome. And it's basically that your home is your castle. He wouldn't even in his house. So that whole defense is he should be just buried under the prison somewhere. But the, the responsibility still is on adults. You can't legislate crazy. I don't care how many laws you pass. We have a lot. Since Exodus 20, this says, or 10, thou shalt not murder. From that point on down, it's wrong. But we still will create a new rule. If if I want to run for office and and be effective, I'll pick the gun issue and I'll, I'll pick something that won't stop any crime, any death, anything, and I'll win on that. I'll say, we're going to stop all plastic cups from killing children. And I'll push that thing and I'll win it. It doesn't matter that plastic cups haven't killed anybody. We have so many laws like that that it's ridiculous. <coughs> So you're saying some of the laws are used to scare people and to influence the voting process. Gun control is like one of the top five issues. It never goes away. So, Mr. Richardson, what's your opinion on that? Um, I, I want to get back to your question. One of the reasons why we don't have a lot of statistics is during the 1990s, the NRA pushed for cutting the funding to the CDC to study gun violence. So gun violence, the study of guns has been minimal from the federal government side because that, that, that funding has been cut. So we don't know much about those things that you're asking about. I mean, there may be minimal data, but there could be much more data if there was more funding being pushed 
to either the National Institute of Justice, which is the research arm for the Department of Justice, or to the CDC to look at those at those issues. So, I've, what was your other question? Oh, okay. We got one more. We got another question. Uh, who was first? Uh, Tiki's first. Okay. Yeah, okay. no, that's fine. You still go ahead. Uh, Reynolds, uh, my question is, uh, over the last couple of months, uh, there's news about a 3D gun, a plastic gun that's being printed out. I want to get you guys' uh, comments on that gun, the availability of that gun, and also the government removing that gun from being online, even though you can still get it if you know how to find it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, with a 3D so, gun, it was this guy. So, I, I, I'm, I'm familiar with okay, it. Sure. Um, Number one, I don't think most people are buying 3D printers. Um, they aren't common in households at this point, number one. And number two, although you can program it to make a gun, um, the gun that would be made, it wouldn't be, the, it wouldn't be the first choice, and you're not going to be able to do an incredible amount of damage. And that, that doesn't mean it doesn't present a problem that people can create a weapon that, get, that they can create a firearm that they would have to go through a process to get otherwise um, in their own home. Um, it's a it's a policy issue, and it's like a lot of things. Um, I handled tech issues when I was on the Hill, and so technology frequently outpaces the ability of any legislative body, especially the U.S. Congress, to be able to um, legislate rules, to be able to come, in, come up with how the uh, the industry is supposed to be regulated or if it should be regulated at all. Um, I think it's a positive first step to immediately remove um, the info from the web, but like you said, folks can get it if they want it. Um, I think that's, that's, that's going to be something that's going to be wrapped up in um, the privacy debate um, as we're going forward. I think if you, you look at um, the debate that we had around um, SOPA and PIPA um, over the past couple years, the debate that Facebook and Google, et cetera, have been in around privacy and around use of information and around the Internet being truly free is going to get wrapped up in that. Um, but, it is, but it's a danger that's kind of out there. Yeah, there's not, there's not really, there's not policy on it now. Because I'm just a Let me tell you about this one. The plastic gun. You got the 3D printer. The big machine requires you to do a whole bunch of stuff. Everybody can buy one. The part that's called an actual regulated firearm that was in question was the lower receiver of an AR-15. Not going to go into details about M16s and rifles, but it's the small part right before your hand that you throw the magazine in. Not the whole gun. That word plastic gun and that whole fear happened again back in the 80s when the Glock first came out. Everybody was afraid that the Glock was this plastic gun made from polymer that was going to get through the airport and it was going to be this dangerous gun. Even if you look at Die Hard 1, Bruce Willis even mentions it. He's got a Glock. That thing can go to the airport. It was part of the myth of the plastic gun. Like I said, everything is the same. Well, this year, now, in this time period, it's the myth of the 3D printed gun. And the part that's printed is so small a part, you still need metal. You still need a whole lot of other parts to actually make this thing work. So it's a part of the, the hype to get people to move in a certain direction. There's no threat right now. 
question for nobody. Um, I'll take even snacks. Did you still have a question? Well, uh, I was going to go based on your comment that you mentioned. Oh, okay. You can stand, please. Uh, I was going to go based off your comment that you mentioned earlier in regards to like guns having a, a correlation with, uh, you know, property. Mm -hmm. Look at the inner city. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people are trying to struggle, trying to, um, you know, find means to make. You know, they go to, as you said, prison. They come back, they can't find a job. So there's a, a strong correlation as to, you know, well, if I keep on getting locked up, it's the only means so I have to protect myself. I'm trying to, you know, hustle, whatever, you know. So I, I can agree with you on that part. But if you look back in history, right, the Italians, that's mafia, there's a correlation between that, right? So as the, the Italians gain wealth, they start in, starting to start their own businesses. You know, then you don't hear anything about the mafia. If you look at the blacks, you know, I think having more black-owned businesses will actually help our cause. If you look at it in the grander scheme of things, because if you have more black-owned companies, they employ other black-owned people, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, black people. Right. Like prisoners and people, ex-cons and stuff. Right. And that way, you know, right. help the whole surrounding right. community. Right. But I think getting, and I think you make a great point in getting to what the community can do. And you said that we should be employing, black businesses should be employing other African-Americans. Well, I, I agree totally because right now the prison industrial complex is employing hundreds and thousands of black men and black women. So well, you, what is the prison industrial? Prison industrial complex is the intersection between public and private interests, where we where there's a profit made on incarceration. So if you can look at, you can buy stock in a private prison on the New York Stock Exchange in the Correctional Corporation of America. You can buy it from the Geo Group. There was recently uh, uh, University of Central Florida was named after a pri uh, private prison, and and activists got together and and stopped it. So what you can do on, a, on a, a community level is you need to follow the money. So if you follow the money as a community activist in the same way that apartheid was destroyed in South Africa was primarily because there was a boycott on all the corporations who did business with South Africa. And students led that movement. So if students can lead that movement, then clearly educated young black professionals can lead a movement where they begin to identify those corporations that are tied to organizations like, I mentioned, like Alec. Like the Nation of Islam is one example. Also, the rights movement was actually the ideology and establish our own center, center of business. We all buy our own black-owned businesses. So we can profit. Right. And I agree with and I agree with my brother as, as far as being an advocate, being pro gun. I mean, look at the Black Panther Party, right? There's a there's a documentary called Negroes with Guns. I don't know if anybody has ever seen it, but you need to check it out. It's based on um, African American men in Monroe, North Carolina arming themselves. So the last thing that the federal government wants to see is what? Black men arming themselves, which is why COINTELPRO was created to suppress and get rid of organizations like the Black Panther Party who believed in the Second, the Second Amendment, 
but also believed in empowering their own communities. All right, we're well, we'll a long time. We have one, 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 one well, point on, on that. We have one more question. No, no, well, no, it's, it's relevant. It's I, I, relevant. I understand, but we have one question. <laughs> <laughs> we're running out of time. We're going to get back to you. We have, uh, we want to, that can be your final thought. Uh, Okay. Um, so, there's, okay. so there's obviously a lot of different issue, uh, viewpoints on the panel. Um, I'm curious to know if you can pick one step for us to make some progress on this whole issue of violence um, from the far right, from the far left. What would that one step be? We talked about different root causes, incarceration, poverty, mental illness, which wasn't mentioned a lot. Um, but there's a lot of things that could go into violence. Um, and regardless of whether there should be gun control or not, or what, how much there should be, there's something that could be done, um, even if it's just one step. So I'm just curious from each of you what that step would be, in your opinion. Parents, take care of your children. Take care of your household. Each one grab your own home. Make sure that your house is right. Can't work by everybody else, but your house should be right. Whatever right is, it should be your house. Make a rule for your house. So my thing, um, one, go online, find the Gun Trafficking Prevention Act of 2013, which addresses straw purchasers, um, which is really the piece of legislation that goes after bad actors, and I think the piece of legislation currently that has the best chance of moving forward in Congress, and then go to Congressman Scott Rigel, go to Congressman Elijah Cummins, and ask them how you can be helpful in, in moving that forward. I guess I guess go, on, go online, find it, send it out to your committees, make sure you agree with it first, and then go, you know, if, if you decide it's something you agree on, go and talk to them about it. Talk to them about how you can be helpful. Talk about the impact um, that it can potentially have on your communities. And then, to your point, on the prison piece, um, it's time to reauthorize the Second Chance Act, which uh, Congressman Danny Davis and then Congressman uh, Rob Portman wrote uh, when he was in the House. Now it's a Portman-Leahy bill in the Senate. Uh, Congressman Davis has a, a companion in the House, but it directly addresses training for uh, formerly incarcerated uh, Americans, and so it's in, and it in particular affects folks from communities of color. And so those are two things: one that goes after directly um, the issue of gun violence and bad actors um, who are doing the straw purchasing for other folks, and then secondly, it goes after the uh, the prison issue, which you mentioned, which is important. Um, I think one of the best ways to do it is through the media. And so I think that, you know, you've had campaigns like the Truth Campaign, which was instrumental in getting people to reduce the level of smoking. But I think we have to have that same kind of grassroots kind of campaign come out of, out of our own community. And the way that that message is going to be spread ultimately will be through the media. Because one of the things right now, we know that kind of less than, I think, 1% of all radio and television are owned by African Americans. So unless we begin to control the media and the Koch brothers, who are part of this privatization movement, I don't know how many of you have heard of them, but they're trying to buy all the television stations in this country to, to push... And Koch Brothers, just a little answer, Koch Brothers had purchased, contributed $29 million to PBS. There was actually a documentary that PBS was going to put on about the Koch Brothers, and they took it off because P 
some people are thinking about exactly. So I think that one of the ways that we can do it is definitely have a media campaign, but I, I can't underscore the necessity of addressing the, this issue of incarceration and how I feel like incarceration is really tied to not just violence, but the, the entire social disorganization of our communities. Okay, well, Mr. Andrews, I'm going to let you have to start out the last thoughts of the night. Make your point or whatever you like to say. Or whatever I'd like to say. Yes, sir. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, again, I appreciate the invite uh, from you guys. And uh, in my bio, failed to mention the most important piece that Mr. Davidson, your president, and I are from the same state. So always happy to be supportive of him and of Alabama. Um, I gave you a couple of pieces of legislation that I think um, will be moving in the U.S. Congress and a couple of pieces of legislation, pieces of legislation that directly affect D.C. and communities of color more generally. And so the only thing that I'd like to leave with you is you have the opportunity to, the Second Chance Act is being written, the reauthorization is being written right now, and with the, uh, the Gun Trafficking Prevention Act, um, it's currently out there, but it needs more support. And so the opportunity is there for Thursday Network, for National Urban League, to positively affect change the both bipartisan pieces of legislation. Um, and so that's my encouragement to you. It's go and look at those, decide whether or not you agree with them, and then put together a plan to begin an advocacy campaign to uh, to support them, because I think they both have a lot of positive potential, and I'm certainly happy to be uh, to be helpful with you in that in that process, if you'd like. Mr. Blanchard, last thought. I'd like to offer YP free training. Free training. Blackmanwithagun at gmail.com. <coughs> We'll start from there. If I get one, fine. If I get two, fine. I have a team of instructors that I work with all the time who always say, Ken, if there's anything that you need, well, I just found a reason. So if I, I'm really, really happy to be invited here. Usually I'm talking to people who don't have a clue or not going anywhere. You guys made me so proud just being in a room with you. You, don't, you have no idea. I've been doing this for 20 years. When I started in 1991, all I wanted to do was be the community guy to help our neighborhood. I had no idea about the history, about the fear, so my whole plan got shut out the window because nobody wanted the training I was trying to offer. It took me 20 years to get back around to where I can do it now. But if you want help, if you want some inside stuff, contact me. Thank you. Dr. Richardson. I think ultimately you have to step outside of your comfort zone. I mean, I can't offer any real policy issue, per se, because I think we've kind of discussed them, but just on a very personal level, you know, we're very fortunate to be in a position where we're educated, and and there were, you know, we've struggled a very long time to get to this point, and a lot of people have sacrificed their lives to get us to this point, and that we have to be very comfortable with stepping outside of our comfort zone because far too often we're not willing to do it. And it takes a lot of sacrifice and it's not going to change overnight. You know, a lot of times I spend 
hours on end, and my colleagues do too, doing things that we may be doing that we find that other people we may ask may not be particularly involved and may be giving lip service to it. But it's about stepping outside your comfort zone. It's about going down to Barry Farms. When you're not, when you're not part of an organization and just going down there and making sure you grab somebody from out of there because to everyone that has been given something, much is required in return. So, and that's the way I try to live my life, is to step out of my comfort zone and make sure that whatever I've been given and the blessings I've been given, I try to pull somebody out of that predicament. So I think the first thing you have to do is look in the mirror before you start anything and decide what you're willing to do and what sacrifices you're willing to make because people looked in the mirror and they died for their sacrifices for us to be here. So unless you're willing to go that far, then it's really no, no point. And, and that's the first decision you need to make before you do anything else. All right. Well, we'd like to thank all the panelists for coming. Thank you. All right. What you think? Yeah, I know I threw Zimmerman under the bus on that one. But I felt that crap. I mean, I was just so, mm, so fired up. But, hey, if you disagree, you can let me know. There was just so much wrong in there. Just, uh, oh. But the whole environment was wanting to take a shower when I got at it. The good news is I do possibly have three or four students that I'll be taking to the range and helping them out. I'm looking forward to that. If I don't scare them away with the podcast they just listened to. You made it to the end, y'all. Again, this show is sponsored by CrossbreedHolsters.com, NovaArmament.com, ErgoGrips.net, and you. Please consider supporting the brother with the war chest effort. There'll be a link to it on the site. That's all I'm going to say about that. Let your heart guide you if you got it. Cool. concludes another episode of the urban shooter podcast thanks for listening downloading and subscribing if you need to reach me call 888-675-0202 or email me at 
blackmanwithagun at gmail.com. Please leave me a review on iTunes. A thumbs up on stitcher.com. The show notes can be found at blackmanwithagun.com. A big booty woman gonna take me to my grave. Born under bad side. I've been dead since I began to crawl. If it wasn't for bad love, wouldn't have. I'm the black man with a gun. Shalom, baby.